Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Stigma. I am Ciara Manova, your host, and today's episode is on a relatively new field in the sciences known as positive psychology. Now, positive psychology, in contrast to what its name suggests, isn't really about practicing positivity or how to be positive, but in a nutshell is about the psychology of well-being. In this episode, we will talk about how we can identify our strengths and understand our values, which in turn can help us use a more solution-focused approach in our lives. We'll also talk about some skills to improve our overall well-being and how to tackle stress and loneliness. Let's get started. Our exceptional guest today is Dr. Giselle Diaz, who is a senior lecturer in psychology at King's College London, a chartered psychologist in the UK, and a neuroscientist and coaching psychologist. In addition to her focus on neuroscientific research, she has also undertaken training in coaching psychology and has a special interest in positive psychology, which we'll be talking about today in this episode. Dr. Diaz's current work focuses on designing psychological interventions to promote resilience and well-being in individuals and communities, and has published many articles and book chapters in the field, including being the first author of a cognitive behavioral coaching book published in our home country in Brazil. So Dr. Diaz, welcome, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me today, Sierra. A real pleasure for me. This is a very interesting discipline in the field of psychology because while we are used to studying diseases or disorders in mental health and how to get better and treat those problems in living, positive psychology, I believe, takes a different approach. So what is it about positive psychology that makes it unique and how did it come into existence in the field? Thanks for that question. Um, positive psychology was born, like you said, from the realization that mainstream psychology has been mostly focused on understanding what goes wrong, on how to fix things when they go wrong. Um, so rather than focusing on psychopathology, positive psychology is interested in understanding which factors are conducive of optimal psychological functioning, for example, or in, mm -hmm. you know, in the words that we normally use, flourishing. Um, positive psychology interventions, in turn, will very likely try to translate these findings into evidence-based programs to promote well-being and resilience and help people and communities to thrive. Um, the field is unique for using a strength-based approach to our understanding of human experience, um, as opposed, to, for example, to being based on an illness ideology, and for doing so in a way that is underpinned by science and by evidence. So in terms of how the field has come into existence, it's important for us to recognize that this has been a topic of interest and work by many philosophers in ancient Greece. So it's not anything like new in that sense, for example, from the Stoicism school of thinking mm -hmm. and also by humanistic psychologists in the mid 20th century who were also interested in the topic of well-being and as they call it, self-actualization. 
Um, I guess what positive psychology did was to add a scientific approach to our discussions and understandings of topics related to well-being. And this normally dates back to Professor Martin Seligman's uh, presidential address of the American Psychological Association in 1999. So really a contemporary recent field. Uh, it's also very important to say, though, that although positive psychology is focused on the study and application of um, positive emotions and positive behaviors, it is equally focused on what makes life meaningful and mm -hmm. purposeful, uh, which relates to a type of well-being that we you know, technically call uh, eudaimonic well-being. Mm -hmm. And that is a you know a way to, to differentiate it from another type of well-being called hedonic well-being, which will be mainly concerned, let's say, with more pleasurable sensorial experiences, let's say. Uh, so contemporary uh, positive psychology actively uh, recognize the value of the negative. Uh, and this is something that I think is very important to mention as well, because many people think that uh, positive psychology is just about the positive mm -hmm. and that, you know, we've come from one end on just focusing on the negative to another end on just focusing on the positive. Uh, and it's important to say that, you know, a positive psychology as it is nowadays actively recognizes the value of the negative. So, for example, the field today greatly appreciates that many experiences will involve a blend of uh, positive and negative elements and that well-being and flourishing depends actually upon a complex balance and uh, harmonization of light and dark aspects of life, which is something that we see very very uh, clearly mm -hmm. in studies around uh, post-traumatic growth uh, and our experience of love as well. Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. I also really like this approach because I feel it's very empowering and liberating in a sense it allows the person to take responsibility for themselves, which I also think is very important. And it also focuses on the fact that one can focus on their strengths because a lot of the times when we feel low or unsatisfied, we tend to forget about the good in ourselves and also the opportunities that we may have. So I think this work that you are doing in this field is very important. So essentially, as you said, positive psychology asks not what is wrong with you, but what is right with you. And from your work, you talk a lot about strength-focused approaches, which we'll get to shortly. But first, I want to talk about this three-step question process, which I guess asks the more fundamental questions in life, as you mentioned. And those three questions are, what gives you meaning, what gives you pleasure, and what engages you? So because you look at this from a scientific approach or perspective, was it, what is it about these questions that can be beneficial or has shown scientific evidence to be beneficial? And what techniques do you use to make use of it once you have your own set of answers? No, that's great. That's another great question. And, and this is a great technique. It's been, uh, I think, one of the, the classic positive psychology techniques. So it's great that you're, you're asking about uh, about this technique. So these questions, what gives you meaning, what gives you pleasure, what engages you, tap onto the idea of authentic happiness. So authentic happiness would be, you know, roughly speaking, about finding balance between living what's called the pleasurable life, uh, the engaged life, and the meaningful life. 
So these questions will tap into these ideas of, you know, these different aspects of life uh, where, you know, if, if, you, if you find some balance on, on experiencing them more often than not, you would very likely experience a state of flourishing. And, and these, these questions, this technique will help people reflect and become more aware about what gives them meaning, pleasure, and which activities create what we call flow. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea that was uh, developed by the psychologist uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, uh, the idea of being so involved and absorbed in an activity that you feel that time stops. Mm. So the exercise is it's so interesting because it's deceptively simple and it's very flexible. It can be used in many different ways, but it's so powerful. Um, so for example, after you have set your answers, you can check where there is an overlap. So the idea here would be to try and find activities that bring two or even three of them together. Mm. It helps people see that sometimes they are not doing these things, you know, as often as they would want to. So it really creates awareness and, and energizes people in a way that, uh, you know, helps um, some action plans to be put in practice, which which I find great. Uh, and then that's it. You know, you can set up action plans to create opportunities to bring more of these activities into your life, for example, on the following week. Um, so, yes, it, it is uh, a very good technique. I would definitely recommend it. Wow. I, I absolutely love that. And, you know, speaking of action plans, let's talk about the strength-focused approach. What are the, some of the techniques that are used to focus on one's strengths that you know, go aligned with one's values, as you mentioned. And maybe you can talk here about the application of SMART goals um, or the IGRO model, but I'll leave you to choose that. Great. Not, not a great uh, question. So a strengths-based approach is about focusing on your uh, authentic, true self. Um, it is about us focusing on identifying and using more the patterns of thought and behavior that really energize us and lead to our best performance in life, or like sometimes we say the best version of ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's like what uh, others would recognize in us as our hallmark. So, you know, people would say, oh, yeah, that's, uh, you know, his or her, uh, you know, signature mm-hmm. uh, or hallmark. Um, so there are many labels used for strengths. Uh, for example, we find uh, in the literature in this great work, uh, you know, from uh, the VIA Institute, uh, where, you know, these strength, strengths we've received have been extensively studied. And uh, we have received labels such as fairness, creativity, leadership, courage. They are found in different cultures. It's really interesting. Uh, but also, as positive psychologist uh, Dr. Robert Binswas-Dinner uh, reminds us, we can also make up the labels ourselves. So the process is fluid and creative, and it can be fun. For example, mm-hmm. I can think about one's ability to observe the behaviors of others on a team or, or during a meeting and see patterns that will go unnoticed to other people as, let's say, hawkability. This is a new one. 
word, you know, mm-hmm. a, a word that, you know, I, I've created with, you know, a client once. And that would be, you know, an allusion to a hawk's amazing ability to see what others might not. Mm. And um, the more creative and unique we create these labels, the better, because it helps the person recognize themselves in it and find it very, um, you know, unique to them. And it helps them take ownership of it. Like, oh, yes, yeah, so th- that is my hawk ability. That's what I bring to the table. I'm able to go to 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 a meeting or or to interact with my peers in a way that I can sit and observe mm-hmm. and learn from them in that way and understand what 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 they are doing, what they are saying, how they are saying it, and and learn from those excellent skills of my colleague. Um, so roughly the start, uh, you know, the process uh, starts uh, with identifying and labeling these strengths. Um, so we can think of situations where the person felt really proud of um, and invite them to consider what went right in that situation where they felt really proud of and which characteristics they have recruited in that situation that helped produce the positive outcome. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a, a a storytelling like exercise uh, and it's very energizing uh we can see here you know that the process is very transformative from the very beginning it really puts people in a different type of mindset much more conducive of of, of you know solution seeking and and coming up with creative ideas uh, so after identifying strengths, uh, then it's about thinking of ways as creative as possible, like I said, to experiment using them in current life. Um, here you can, you know, uh, like I said, integrate it with smart goals or, or other frameworks to work with, you know, uh, goal setting. Uh, so you would, you know, Consider how you could devise goals, uh, taking your strengths into account, uh, how aligned, you know, your, the goals that you're intending to do, uh, how aligned they are with your strengths, how your strengths can help mm-hmm. you achieve those goals. Uh, and of course, how you can use your strengths, uh, in this action plan stage of goal achievement. Wow. Yeah. It's very cool. And I absolutely love the, hawkability or the, you know, taking ownership of that label. It's such a cool thing. It's definitely going to make me think of something that I think in myself as a strength and I'll give it like a very special name to it. It does create the sense of power, you know, and strength, like you said, and it's a very fun way to, to think about yourself. Yeah, it's great, uh, Sarah. And uh, sorry, uh, just to to add to that, that, you know, we can think at first when we use this approach that we're putting people in boxes, we're labeling, we shouldn't be doing that. But, you know, professional practice, for example, in in positive psychology coaching, will tell us more often than not that that's not the case, that people actually feel understood by it because Mm. it's, it's not... Because it's it's about labeling strengths and not uh, stigmatizing and 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 putting people in a negative box. It it feels, but in all honesty, we would need to, of course, to do uh, uh, some studies to 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 you know tap into the mm. evidence to to say that. But what uh, at least my professional practice will will. will you know, tell me is that uh, very likely because it's a focus on on strengths. It really is conducive to people taking ownership of it and uh, having a positive effect rather than, you know, the negative effects that we see with labeling at times. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It does make you wonder whether we have given labeling itself a very bad name. But like you said, 
maybe sometimes it's actually a good thing because it helps people identify with something and sometimes be a part of something as well. But Gisele, you gave some honestly amazing points on how to focus on the strengths in us and, you know, take ownership of our strengths as well. But I do want to talk about the role of stress in our lives, which obviously has a huge part in our overall well-being. And, you know, no matter how much we think about or how much we focus on strengths and our fundamental values, we can't avoid the stressors in our life, right? It's always somehow going to be there and going to be taking over our life. So I do want to talk about the role of stress. How does um, acute and chronic stress impact our nervous system and differently, which, which we know it does differently? And then what are some of the ways that have been clinically proven to reduce those in real time and quite effectively as well? Yeah, that's a very, very good, important point. It, I think it, it goes back to what we were saying in the beginning about embracing, you know, human experience, mm -hmm. you know, the positives and the negatives. And we, we really can't um, take for granted the impact uh, of stress on our daily lives. So let's start by defining stress. Uh, of course, you know, like happens with anything, you can find different definitions. But here, let's define stress as a subjective state of sensing potentially adverse changes in the environment. Environment, mm -hmm. uh, that will lead to a response that enables us, you know, or any organism, any animal to adapt uh, to the changing environment. So there is, you know, what we call a, the stress cascade or the stress response. Mm -hmm. And that can be roughly divided into three stages. So first, the individual perceives the stress leading to, you know, some sort of uh, disturbance of the individual's environment. Uh, like internal environment. And that leads to the release of molecules, which we call stress mediators, which binds to receptors and exerts, you know, very specific effects related to survival, to increasing the likelihood of survival. And then we have, you know, as an outcome, uh, physiological, behavioral, emotional, and cognitive responses being triggered as an attempt to adapt the organism to those new circumstances. So it's important to say as well that not all stress is detrimental to the brain mm -hmm. and to our mental health and well-being. The stress response has been, you know, conserved over millions of years of evolution, um, you know, because of its uh, um, uh, important role in enhancing our chance of survival. Right. But stress becomes a problem when it is very high in magnitude and in frequency, uh, like you said, you know, when it becomes really chronic or when it is acute, but it is of such a magnitude, it's such a traumatic experience mm -hmm. uh, that it, it, it really um, impacts uh, the possibility of, you know, that um, organism functioning at proper levels for, for quite some time. So in the short term, the stress response helps an individual to cope with the stressor. In the long term, it produces changes that are maladaptive. So roughly speaking, when the brain recognizes what we call a stressor, so think about, you know, seeing a snake when you're hiking, that would be an example of acute, st mm -hmm. sorry, acute stress or something more chronic, like being bullied at work or being, you know, perceiving that you're, you're being bullied at work. Right. Two main systems will become activated in, you know, our organism. So 
One involving the sympathetic nervous system, which involves a you know very rapid response, a very rapid release of adrenaline to prepare the body to fight or flight. Um, and a second stage, uh, which of course happens very quickly, it's just that the first one is so quick mm. that puts the second one as a little bit uh, slower in physiological uh, milliseconds uh, uh, scale of time, uh, uh, which is the hypothalamic uh, pituitary adrenal axis. And that's, like I said, involves you know a slower mm-hmm. release of mediators more specifically of cortisol, uh, which will be important for mobilizing energy on this sort of second phase of uh, the stress response. But it's important, you know, that we realize, like I said, that uh, when when the release of these stress mediators uh, don't stop, they can cause, uh, you know, a several uh, uh, maladaptive changes uh, in the brain. Um, But in terms of, you know, evidence-based interventions for stress management, uh, I would very likely advocate for cognitive behavioral techniques, Mm -hmm. which, you know, speak very closely with positive psychology they they are you know roughly speaking like good friends mm-hmm. and mindfulness which you know for many people is considered one type of positive psychology intervention not all researchers will see it that way but it is you know a, a very a very good effective way of dealing with stress uh, apparently uh, and there is also very uh, you know although very early evidence but some evidence pointing out there that you know Positive psychology interventions mm-hmm. can help develop resilience, which can be a buffer against stress. So can 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 prevent um, the you know the stress response to 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 be to be so strong or or or, or chronic um, as happens when the you know that that triggered the, the negative outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do know a lot of people are getting more interested in mindfulness as well as meditation as a form of stress release. So. Um, I, I do think that aspect is very important. I personally also engage in that, but I have engaged with a positive psychology intervention with your program as well. So I could definitely yeah. advocate for that also. Giselle, there is another uh, important aspect that I want to talk about, which I think is important for our well-being, and that is loneliness, tackling loneliness. I think sometimes we don't realize how feeling alone can impact us negatively, even, you know, people that think or tend to think they are introverted. And I personally believe you can, you know, feel alone or feel lonely even being amongst a group of people or being surrounded by people you think are friends. So being alone doesn't always mean being lonely and, you know, vice versa. But can you tell us about kind of the basic neuroscientific knowledge that we have on loneliness or, or just generally what you know about the concept of loneliness and then kind of the evidence around tackling that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a a great topic. And I think now that, you know, we have to deal with, you know, all the uh, consequences of the pandemic, the Mm COVID-19 pandemic, I think loneliness has become an even more um, contemporary thing to talk about an important one. Mm -hmm. So Let's start again with definitions. Uh, and I think you have uh, tapped already onto some very important things around uh, what 
loneliness is and isn't. Uh, so one possible avenue uh, for us to understand it is through the lens of evolution and biology. So according with this you know, school of thought, uh, to understand loneliness, we should remember that meaningful social connections are an integral part of human nature. We are a biologically social species. We have a social brain. Um, and there's some good evidence uh, for this um, when we think about our need for a carer for so long during our development. Uh, and this is something we don't see in many other species. You know, if mm -hmm. you have seen, for example, some wildlife documentaries and you see like a baby leopard uh, will be born and will almost immediately start walking, will very soon give it a go at in finding their own food and so on. And this is not something that we see with, um, you know, baby humans. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, you know, this, this really uh, important need for, for connection to, to enhance our likelihood uh, for survival. So based on this idea that we have a social brain, loneliness could be conceptualized as a biological construct. It's not obviously the only way of seeing it, but it's a, a very interesting one for us to consider. So it would be this aversive state that has evolved as a signal for behavioral change, like a signal to prompt us to connect with others, to enhance our likelihood of surviving and then passing on our genes. Mm -hmm. But some other points that are key to our understanding of loneliness um, are, you know, one is that it has to do with a change of social environment. Um, so, for example, with transitions in life, Loneliness often happens during life transitions and it happens with all of us, basically. So think about starting at university, starting a new job, moving into a new town. You know, there will be a transitional phase where you very likely feel lonely. And in that way, it's a, a very global and common phenomenon in our lives. Mm. Um There are biopsychosocial bio factors uh, influencing loneliness, but it's a very internal feeling. It is not about social isolation in terms of the number of social relationships or the size of your social network. Mm -hmm. Like you said very well in the beginning, you can feel lonely and be, you know, surrounded by a crowd. Um, it's about one subjective experience of loneliness. It's about our perceived social isolation. Uh, so it, it is about a person's feeling about, you know, the adequacy and the quality of their relationship. So not the quantity, but right. the quality of that social connection. Um, we can also think about it as an, uh, an inability to overcome feelings of loneliness following a life transition. So, you know, we'll all, uh, have that transitional period, but most likely we will overcome that. But for some people, that's very difficult and that becomes the new norm for them. Uh, so all these are important things for us to, to keep in mind. But there are some very good you know, papers out there. And there is some evidence still, you know, under debate, uh, but very interesting uh, to suggest that social rejection would activate the pain network in the brain. Mm. Uh, we also have, you know, from uh, um, animal models in, in laboratory uh, based research uh, that social isolation reduces the ability of one area in our brain called the hippocampus to generate new neurons. Um, so those new neurons are known to be important for learning and memory and to protect us against um, 
behaviors related to depression and anxiety. And that could help explain, uh, you know, if we're able to draw conclusions from this type of work uh, to, you know, humans, uh, that could help explain some of the negative implications of loneliness. And it's important to say that, yes, chronic loneliness, that is uh, loneliness experienced more often than not for at least three years, has been associated with, you know, de decreased lifespan mm. and, uh, uh, you know, very negative. Uh, negative implications for the individual. Now, about evidence around tackling loneliness, again, cognitive approaches, helping the person to reframe maladaptive thoughts around, you know, their perceived likability in social situations, the perceived quality of their social relationships, and uh, yeah, how they see their social interactions, uh, you know, would be good evidence-based uh, approaches to it. In terms of positive psychology interventions, well, these have been uh, overlooked uh, as an alternative approach in combating loneliness. So there's very few studies on the topic, despite uh, relationships, the topic of relationships and social connectedness being such a key pillar to well-being uh, and mental health. But uh, it's, this is not to say that positive psychology interventions do not have an impact on loneliness. What's missing is studies to understand how they could help. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we could think about a rationale for, you know, positive psychology intervention uh, being designed for loneliness. For example, we uh, can consider, you know, it makes sense that we explore this area because positive psychology interventions could very likely improve the quality of relationships by promoting positive effect and uh, facilitating the use of positive interpersonal skills. Uh, and I think it's also important to say that among interventions to tackle loneliness, it's very plausible to consider uh, coaching psychology programs, uh, especially if we're talking about positive psychology, mm. positive psychology coaching programs. Uh, and the reason for this is that, you know, the, these programs are designed to provide a non-judgmental safe space to discuss uh, issues related to several things, including social connectedness. Uh, and especially when offered in groups, they can help increase relationship-oriented behavior and they can also help reframe unhelpful cognitions um, around interpersonal relationships and promote action driven to improve social connectedness. Mm. Yeah, it's it, it does feel like one whole paradigm in a way. If you think about it, for with positive psychology, if you focus on your strengths and what gives you positive, what gives you meaning and what gives you what are your values in life as such, you tend to when you tend to focus on that and meaningful relationships, you start growing those parts of your life. Because a lot of times when people don't feel confident in themselves, they don't want to create connections and hence they, you know, isolate themselves and then they become lonely. And it's like kind of like a cycle, right? But the more you focus on the good about yourself, the more you want to connect and maybe finding your strengths, you will find other people that have similar interests as you, similar values as you and things as such, right? So it's kind of like this, interconnectedness uh, cycle but absolutely and you know you mentioned a lot about the biological implications and what I find beautiful and amazing is that when we do focus on our strengths or resilience or the good there is an actual change happening in our brains right and I know you've done research about neuroplasticity and I think this is a fascinating field and research area so can you talk to us a bit about neuroplasticity and neurogenesis and 
how by changing our behavior or by focusing on our strengths or on the positive or whatever, can we actually create new pathways and neurons or change our brain? Yeah, so um, neuroplasticity refers to, you know, the ability of our brain to reorganize itself in response to different um, stimuli. So changes can occur in contexts such as, you know, during our normal development, uh, in contexts such as, you know, brain damage, sensory deprivation, acquisition of new skills. So when we are learning, we are recruiting our neuroplasticity um, abilities and also in the context of psychiatric disorders, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there are some, you know, um, remarkable cases of uh, brain plasticity uh, being illustrated in studies with people learning new skills, for example, playing instruments and, and juggling. Um, and it's important uh, to know that there are many microscopic mechanisms underpinning these, uh, you know, this brain reorganization that we see at a more structural level. So some of these mechanisms of neuroplasticity in the brain can include, for example, an increase in the number of, uh, you know, neuron to neuron uh, contacts, which we call synapses. In mm-hmm. this process of generating new synapses, we call uh, synaptogenesis. Um, you know, the, the connection between neurons, so, so synapses can become strengthened, but we can also change uh, our number of neurons. And that is what's called neurogenesis. Um, it doesn't happen in any area of the brain, neurogenesis, a very special type of neuroplasticity. So let's focus here on the neurogenesis that happens in the hippocampus, mm-hmm. a very, very special um, area in the brain uh, that's related with uh, learning memory and mood regulation. So this process would be called hippocampal neurogenesis, and it happens across our lifespan. Uh, sorry, our lifespan. So this idea that we cannot generate new neurons after we are born or as adults is not sustained anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so this process is an important form of plasticity uh, and refers to our ability of continually generating newly functional neurons throughout life. It is a process that is highly regulated. And what I mean by that is that there are factors in the environment that can regulate uh, hippocampal neurogenesis. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, being in an enriched environment, uh, having a diet that is rich in omega-3 fatty acids and polyphenols during regular physical exercise, all this can increase neurogenesis, but also there are factors that will decrease it, such as smoking, sleep deprivation, um, chemotherapy stress, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so some evidence from studies suggest that um, this process of hippocampal neurogenesis is necessary for appropriate uh, stress responses and to prevent depression and anxiety. Um, the good news is that because this process can be regulated by uh, external factors, it's very plausible to believe that, you know, the develop- with the development of new drugs and nutraceuticals and, and having a healthy lifestyle mm-hmm. could help, uh, uh, you know, promote dysfunction in the brain and promote good mental health. Now, to your question about focusing on positive behaviors, um, any new behavioral pattern, adaptive or maladaptive, positive or not so much, will result and be the result of new neural networks in the brain. And very likely, the more you use them, the mm. more... Uh, likely they will get strengthened and with that the more likely they will become your brains let's say 
first option of behavioral or thought pattern. So the idea here of continually um, practicing, you know, uh, something, a new new style of behavioral behavior, a new way of seeing things in life being very important. It's still very early days to implicate this with neurogenesis, but, you know, very likely uh, this process of building new you know, networks and that becoming more of your, your default response from your brain is implicated with uh, the generation of new neural networks through new neuro, uh, neuronal connections as we see in synaptogenesis. Wow, it's super fascinating. It's, it's honestly very interesting that once we strengthen certain types of behaviors, our brains get wired in a certain way. The more yeah. behaviors that we practice, there are certain neurons in, a, in our brains that get more enhanced or the connections become more stronger. So here you go, people. <laughs> practice, uh, practice the good things so that your brain is wired in a healthy way. Giselle, th this was an amazing talk. But as a wrap-up question, I want to ask you, where do you see positive psychology uh, in the near future? Are these approaches applied to clinical settings? Same way as, for example, you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, family-based therapy. Do you want to see these or you want to see positive psychology used in schools or in universities like you did as well? And is this essentially going to replace regular forms of psychological treatments or is it going to complement it? Hmm. Um, that's a very good wrap-up question. Um, I think, or at least I hope, that we will be able to produce an increasingly stronger body of evidence supporting the effectiveness of positive psychology interventions in bringing about the best in people in several contexts. So, um, yeah, like I said, you know, schools, universities, clinical practice, etc. I don't think the goal is for these interventions to necessarily replace other psychological approaches, or at least mm -hmm. I don't see it in that way. I think, you know, human beings are very complex. And I believe that as long as the evidence is there to support that a certain intervention is beneficial and won't cause harm uh, and is effective, uh, there, there should be a range of options on offer, mm -hmm. as not everybody will engage with a single type of intervention in the same way. Uh, I have, as you know, a particular interest interest in the application of positive psychology in education, so in universities and schools. Um, and in any case, I would like to see more of um, the positive psychology ethos with, you know, its focus on strengths, on embracing both the mm. negative and the positive in life, on encouraging people to live a life infused with uh, meaning and purpose. In the organizational culture, in schools, in universities, uh, in businesses, in our families and, and communities. Wow. What a beautiful answer, Giselle. And I absolutely couldn't agree more. Thank you for such a fascinating and rich discussion you have given us here today. I really want to thank you for your time and knowledge that you have shared. And I know that so many people will find this discussion so interesting and useful as well. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening. We'll catch you guys next time. Bye.